This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. We understand that the journey as a supporter isn't always smooth sailing, but rest assured you're not alone. There's a vast network of fellow fans who share your passion and may be experiencing similar challenges. Honesty is key in any relationship. If your friend asks you how you are feeling, tell them honestly. If you're going through a difficult time, let them know. Opening up about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Welcome to the latest Total Saints podcast. It's great to have you with us and as ever, hope you and your family are keeping safe and well during these difficult times around the world. I'm really looking forward to this episode of TSP as we're going to be dedicating its entirety to our beloved old football ground, the Dell. A number of listeners and followers have been in touch with some of their Dell memories, which we'll be sharing later on. And we also have a special guest with us, helping us navigate through some of the history about that hallowed piece of Southampton between Archers Road and Milton Road. Before we get on to introducing him... I'm pleased to be accompanied by two regular TSP opinionators, Glenn Delacour, the chief blogger at league1-10.blogspot.com, and Will Dorr, the owner of saintsarchive.com. Hi chaps, hope you're both keeping well? Yeah, yeah, good, yeah. Yeah, not bad, can't complain. Um, I do, of course, but I can't <laughs> complain. It's not, considering everything that's going on, um, things are not too bad, so uh, no, happy days so far. Good to hear, excellent. And uh, look, I mean, Will, obviously completely appreciating that lives are continuing to sadly be lost at the moment. You you managing to get by without any Saints still? No, not really. I tried replacing the lack of Saints action with watching the Bundesliga yesterday. Right. And I must admit, watching football with no supporters uh, in an empty stadium where everyone has to distance themselves as much as possible is a bit surreal. Yeah. But nothing's replacing it. I think Delving into my own archives and watching videos for the 50 millionth time are sort of filling the void. But as you said, I mean, there's, there's people out there in a worse situation than us. So Saints Action, I believe it can pause for as long as it takes just so people, you know, get through this safe and sound. Yeah, indeed. I uh, I decided I was going to start following uh, Cologne after their um, sort of uh, relationship with Saints at the start of the season, uh, pre-season. Of course, they threw a two-goal uh, lead away, which made me feel like I picked the right team, absolutely. So that was good. <laughs> so uh, good stuff. And uh, Glenn, I'm sure I saw a photo of you on Facebook the other day with uh, what appeared to be a very, very well-established lockdown beard. Yeah, yeah, it's very grey. 
No, it's actually been um, destroyed somewhat. Um, I allowed my daughter to take the clippers to it. Right. Um, she has absolutely no experience of hairdressing whatsoever. I've ended up with a short back and sides, and she was scared to do the top. So I've ended up looking like a very old version of my 90s self with a big floppy fringe. Um, but the beard has been hacked about a bit, so yeah. it looks a bit tidier now. <laughs> Thanks to both of you for giving up some time to join us once more. Um, right, on to our special guest. Now, if you love Southampton as much as Glenn, Will and myself do, you'll no doubt already have heard about and or follow the historic Southampton Twitter account, at Historical Sutton. Established in October 2015 and now with over 9,800 followers, it's a shrine to everything Southampton, as, in its own words, Historic Southampton explores Southampton's rich history. The man behind it, pouring in hours of love and enthusiasm and a massive Saints fan as well, is Russell Masters, and we're delighted to have him joining us this week. Russell, firstly, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. How's things with you? Hi, Ben. Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Um, just trying to keep busy during this lockdown so uh yeah thank you for inviting me on no worries and uh, look before we get on to the the dow russell tell us a bit about where the historic southampton idea came from well i've always had an interest in history you know mm. going back to, to childhood um and like you ben i grew up in netley yep. uh, and as we know there's loads of history there you've got the royal victoria country park which was the site of the largest military hospital in the world um you've got netley abbey there too the fascinating 13th century ruins both places well worth a visit, as you know. Yep. Um, so I grew up around all that, and as a nipper, I used to love going around Southampton's walls. I was taken to the museums and stuff. Mm. Uh, I used to be interested by the Bargate and the ruins of Hollywood Church and all that. So I've grown up with it, really, and I love the city. Uh, it's just got so much history. Yeah. And I think it's important that people are aware of it. Um, so I started the Twitter page in 2015, I suppose, sort of as a, a personal outlet for my interest in it all. Mm. Um, so I share all sorts, you know, photos, stories, information, try and sort of do something for everyone. Um, but it's become my hobby, my passion, really. And people seem to enjoy it, which is really nice. No, completely. And the other thing that uh, Russell and I are both very proud of is that Danny Ings grew up in Netley Abbey as well, of course. Of so, course. Uh, <laughs> and its popularity and interest has just grown and grown, right? Yeah, as you say, sort of nearly 10,000 people follow it now, which to me is just mind-blowing, really. And I'm so appreciative of their support. Um, but it's not just local people either. There's people from all over the world taking an interest, uh, even people with no connection to the city. Yeah. And um, believe it or not, there's even a few Pompey fans that follow my yeah. tweets as well. Yeah, blimey. And, uh, yeah. Look, look, I mean, as you say, it's a cacophony of sort of stories and photos and memories collated from various sources and contacts that I know you have, Russell. So how much time and effort do you put into making it the success it's become? It does take up quite a lot of my time. Mm. Um, probably work on it every day in the evenings after work, you know, when I was at work um, before lockdown um, at weekends and stuff. Uh, but it's good, though, and as I'm sure you know with your podcast and Glenn knows with League One Minus 10 and Will knows with Saints Archive, mm. you, you don't mind putting in the hours um, into something when you enjoy it. Yeah, completely. And uh, look, I mean, I mentioned the Twitter handle uh, a moment ago, Russell, at Historical Sutton, but you've also got a, a website that I know you've been working hard on uh, as well. So where can people find that? Yeah, it's historicsouthampton.co.uk. Um, it's quite new and it's a bit of a work in progress at the moment. Uh, I was having quite a lot of help actually building the site from a friend from work. He's a bit of an IT genius and I'm really not. But obviously that's all sort of been put on hold for now with, with everything that's going on. Yeah. Um, he's actually a Pompey fan, so I don't know how he felt about helping to build a website all about Southampton. But um, yeah. I'll have to ask him about that. But yeah, there are a few things on there um, at the moment. Um, there's a few sort of articles uh, there's an interactive map with some local points of interest and mm. there's another interactive map that I'm really proud of um, and it shows the addresses of all the Titanic crew members who either lived or lodged in Southampton prior to the voyage. Yeah. Um, I think that it's important to remember how events like this actually impacted the place on a 
you know, on a personal level. Totally. Um, so that's why I put that together. And I've had people come back and say things like, oh, I found my great grandfather on there and stuff, which is amazing. And Twitter's great for short little bursts of info, but the website just allows me to put together some more kind of detailed things. So, yeah, that's why I did it. Yeah, no, brilliant. I feel if he's a Pompey fan, like we should name and shame him, Russell, but I won't get you to do that. But, uh, <laughs> look, I mean, it is a fabulous visit. So if you've not had a chance to check it out yet, I'd highly suggest you do. Southampton is and always has been an incredible city, and Russell's site, www.historicsouthampton.co.uk, really does it justice. Now, speaking of incredible places, Saints Old Ground the Dell was just that. So in partnership with Saints Archive and Saints World and sponsored by happyhottubs.co.uk, please sit back, relax, and enjoy TSP 116, The Dell Years. I'd really love a hot tub, but I don't know where to start. How easy is the process? It's as easy as one, two, three. Who are you? I'm the man who puts happy people in hot tubs. One, choose your hot tub at Happy Hot Tubs. Two, choose your accessories. And three, choose how you want to pay. With 0% finance available on selected tubs, we even accept American Express. You deserve happy. And at Happy Hot Tubs, it's as easy as one, two, three. Happyhottubs.co.uk Hi guys, I'm Danny Ings and you're listening to Total Saints Podcast. It seems like only yesterday we were watching the final few moments of Saints life at the Dow, but incredibly it's nearly 20 years since its doors closed for the last time, after 103 years of loyal service to our great football club. Since then apartments have sat on top of one of England's most famous old football stadiums. Alongside some of your memories of the Dow, including first ever visits, we'll talk through ours, Dow pre-, mid- and post-game rituals, World War bombs, permanent floodlighting, stadium refurbishment, and of course, Liverpool getting a solid dose of South Coast, shove that in your pipe and smoke it. Right, let's get straight into it. Russell, tell us a bit about the background to Saints acquiring the land, building the Dow, and eventually moving in in September 1898. So, as many of us know, the club was founded in 1885. Um, for a few years, they, they kind of moved around a bit, uh, played at a few different places, including Southampton Common. Uh, they played on some land on Northlands Road. They played at the Antelope Cricket Ground, which was on St Mary's Road. Uh, and they played at the county ground as well. Yeah. Uh, they won the Southern League in 1896-97 and again the following season. So they were growing in stature and, and it was really apparent that they needed a permanent home. There was a plot of land next to the relatively new St. Mark's Church on Arches Road and a chap named George Thomas, uh, who was a fishmonger and a member of the Southampton Football and Athletic Company Limited, managed to secure this plot of land uh, for the club. Right. Basically, it was a small dell, which is an, a narrow valley with a street. Mm -hmm. So they immediately went to work in constructing this new ground, which cost somewhere in the region of £10,000. And obviously, that's where the name comes from, you know, the dell. And Will, the first competitive fixture there saw Saints take on uh, Brighton United. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Uh, it happened on 3rd of September 1898 with just over sort of 6,500 supporters to uh, watch the Saints play against South Coast rivals, Brighton United, in the Southern League. Mm. Uh, the then Mayor of Southampton, Alderman George John Telling, had the honour of doing the kick-off before Saints raced to an early lead. The honour of that first goal that the Dell went to, Watty K, scoring in just five minutes. A. Partly, Jim McKenzie, Tom Smith also got on the score sheet as Saints cruised to a decent 4-1 win. Uh, 23 games later, Saints would eventually be crowned Southern League champions for the third season in a row. And Russell, it's fair to say the new Dell Stadium impressed a couple of visiting journalists, is that right? Yeah, so there was a reporter from the Bournemouth Guardian who visited the ground about a week before that match against Brighton United, and he described the efforts of George Thomas and the company as a miracle in the way that they had managed to transform this deep marshy gorge, as he described it, into a stadium. And the same reporter attended the opening game, and he said that the new ground full of people was an imposing sight, um, which I think, you know, the Dell had a bit of a reputation for in later years. Mm. Um, in his words, he said, there is only a small space outside the touch and goal line so that the spectators are, so to speak, all on top of the play. 
I doubt if there is a ground so compact and carefully laid out in the kingdom. And there was also a reporter from the Lancashire Reading Post who went by the name of Southerner, right. and he covered a lot of the Southern football. Um, and he made the journey down to see the first game. Um, he said the journey was tedious, but I think he was quite <laughs> impressed when he got here. And um, when he saw the Dell, he said, and I quote, Never have I had such a surprise. I've seen nearly all the best grounds in the kingdom, but none where the arrangements have been carried out more perfectly than at Southampton. The playing portion is an enclosure sunk below the original level of the ground, so that the tiers of the stands are mostly solid earth cut on all four sides, while the slopes are all of natural formation. The result is that everybody gets a perfect bird's eye view of the game under the best possible conditions. And he also commented on, in his words, the luxurious accommodation for the players, and he actually moaned about the fact that he was a journalist and not a Saints player. Yeah. There you go. If he thought it was tedious in those days, he'd try getting to St Mary's on a game day, shouldn't he? But uh, yeah. there we go. But uh, Glenn, look, I'm not going to make any jokes about what you thought of that Brighton United game. And uh, you really? know, cause I'm not that sort of person, Glenn, you know that. But uh, look, I mean, seriously, looking back now, how important do you think it was to the overall sort of history of Saints that they found that location and had the funds to build the Dow? You know, I guess it enabled them to sort of start progressing as a club in the early years. I think football's history is littered with clubs who kind of existed for a little bit and never quite sort of settled down the... Yeah with solid roots and they just sort of went by the wayside after a while. So mm. it's the foundations that enabled the club to grow at the time, you know, as uh, Russell's just said there, it was a very nice ground and things from that point were only going to go on and improve. Yeah. In 1901 then, the Dow hosted its first international game. It was a home international championship match with England facing Ireland. The England side actually boasted three Southampton players in its starting lineup. Jack Robinson was in goal. Charles Burgess Fry played at fullback and Archie Turner outside right, albeit he was unfortunately forced off after just 20 minutes through injury. Anyway, England won the game 3-0 to give the Dow a perfect start. Just a few years later, in 1906, the Dell had its first taste of the only true South Coast derby as Pompey rocked up for an FA Cup tie. Suffice to say, much like modern times, we won by four clear goals as Ernest Armfield, who led the club to five Southern League championships and two FA Cup runners-up spots under his management at the club, saw his Saints lads comfortably win 5-1. Defeated and disgraced, that was the view of the Portsmouth Evening News journalist afterwards. Splendid stuff. Anyway, a first home international win and a first South Coast derby win. Dell was really starting to show its class already. And it wasn't even 10 years old at this point. Yeah, exactly. And uh, moving forward a decade or so then, Saints were drawn to play at home to Liverpool in the 1924 FA Cup. Suffice to say, Russell, whilst uh, Liverpool just about got through that tie, we get our own back a year or so later in March 1925. Tell us about the circumstances surrounding those games, not least some, let's call it classy words from our friends at the Liverpool Echo, which would, of course, come back to uh, bite them in the backside. Things yeah, never so... changed today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so before the 1924 tie... Uh, as a journalist from the Live Echo complained about the fact that the tie was due to be paid to the Dell, basically saying that the ground was too small for both clubs to do well financially from it. Right. Uh, he described it as a curiously built ground um, and again commented on the supporters almost coming down to the touchline. Mm. Um, and he wrote, and I won't do a Scouse accent here, um, <laughs> but he said, one of the old players of the club used to call it the mousetrap and visiting teams unaccustomed to such close surroundings get the impression when they make their first appearance there of being closed in on all sides which is pretty much exactly what those journalists had said back in 1898. Mm. Um, but in 1924, Saints were in the second division and Liverpool had just won the first division the season before. Right. Um, so they were definitely favourites, but perhaps they were unaccustomed to such close surroundings because we held them to a nil-nil draw and they couldn't break us down at all. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, they did beat us at Anfield in the replay. However, the next season we were drawn together again in the FA Cup and again it was to be played at the Dell. Um, and another Liverpool Echo reporter who called themselves B, as in like Bumblebee, um, not sure why, but 
they got the train down and, and basically said the journey was one big party. The Liverpool fans were so confident of being the Saints that some of them had already talked about booking trains to London for the final, <laughs> even though if they did beat Saints, they'd still have a semi-final to get through. So they were pretty confident. Um, this B person admitted that the Dell had been unknown to most of the players in that nil-nil draw. Um, and, and I think it was his opinion that they'd heard so much about it beforehand, they became a bit fearful of it and right. they sort of bigged it up in their heads a bit too much. And, and yeah, it all got on top of them. But B was confident that they'd have learnt their lesson. Um, and his next quote is a beauty. He wrote, Nerves count for a lot in cup tie issues. And I imagine that Liverpool's experienced side with its clever teamwork will not be worried by the outlook of visiting Southampton. At any rate, I go for a victory at the first time of asking. And Saints won one nil. <laughs> As Glenn said, nothing changes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've all heard these stories of players fearing Adele and you know, it'd been an intimidating place to visit. Uh, I think it definitely gave us an advantage and, and clearly it did for many years. Mm. Anyway, by now it wasn't just international football matches that the Dell were playing host to, but also heavyweight boxing bouts. 1926 saw Phil Scott ready to defend his British Empire heavyweight title against former champion and local Southampton lad Joe Beckett. Both men had at one time been British heavyweight boxing champions. However, a few days before the fight, Beckett tore his calf muscle and was unable to participate. At short notice, former New Zealand heavyweight champion Tom Heaney stepped in and the two men went toe-to-toe in a ring that had been set up in the middle of the Dell pitch. Scott eventually won narrowly on points after 20 rounds. 20 rounds, blimey. And I understand, I think, from talking to Russell, Tom Heaney had only fought about five days before in London, hadn't he? So that was some effort on his part, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah can't remember how many rounds he went in London, but it was, it was quite a few. Yeah. yeah, five days before, so exhausting. The Dell was now seemingly established as a sought-after sporting venue to help support its evolution. Of course, some redevelopment work took place in the late 1920s. Well, some of it was of the, the clubs making uh, Russell. Uh, unfortunately, another was due to a fire, right? Yeah, the new West Ham was built in 1927 in, in larger capacity. Uh, the pitch itself was moved around 25 feet to the west, so the new enclosed built at the front of the East Stand. Right. But unfortunately, after the final game of the 1928-29 season, um, a fire broke out in the East Stand. Uh, and they reckon it was a result of a cigarette drop during that match. The stand was sort of principally made out of wood. It just went up in flames and mm. was completely destroyed. And luckily, of course, it was after the game. There's nobody in it. Yeah. Um, it could have been a lot worse. But when they rebuilt the East Stand, they basically made it mirror the West Stand. Right. And uh, I saw that the architect behind that uh, 1927 West Stand design was a, a famous Glaswegian football stadium created by the name of Archibald Leach. But I'm reliably informed he's no relation to the former Daily Echo chief sports writer anyway. But uh, it was a, a little ironic that uh, after developing the new stands around the pitch, it would be the actual pitch itself that would have issues just ahead of the 1935 Golden Jubilee match, Russell. Yeah, the club had planned these big celebrations, including a dinner at the Southwestern Hotel, which is now, of course, Southwestern House, yeah. um, to coincide with this Golden Jubilee. Uh, they had Spurs at home on the weekend nearest the date of their first ever game back in November 1885. Right. And they were all set to celebrate in style. You know, everything, all the plans were laid out and stuff. But unfortunately, five days before the match, a massive, great big sinkhole appeared in front of one of the goals. Uh, it was about 12 feet wide and several feet deep. So obviously the pitch was was completely unplayable. Yeah. Um, basically, there'd been storms all across the country, torrential downpours, and it's basically caused a brick culvert carrying the stream under the pitch to just collapse under the pressure. Right. Um, but people went to work and they worked tirelessly to sort it out, and five days later, the game went ahead as planned and Saints beat Spurs 2-0. They had their big dinner at the Southwestern Hotel. There was a huge cake, I think it was £600 or something. Yeah. Um, and in attendance was a chap named Albert Arthur Fry, who had captained Saints in their first ever game 50 years earlier. So I imagine it was quite a nice do. Yeah, no, totally. I, yeah, I get the feeling that uh, probably Glenn's thinking the same. It's not the first time there's been a big hole in our defence, Glenn. 
<laughs> it's something that's carried on throughout the years. Yeah? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so moving on, then, of course, the Second World War came along, Russell, and uh, the Dell pitch would suffer further problems, um, this time due to a direct hit from the Germans. Yeah, I mean, I will never stop telling people about the incredibly important role Southampton played during the Second World War, mm. and the First World War, for that matter, but Southampton was absolutely vital to the war effort. You know, it was an international port, there were shipyards and factories, and, of course, in 1944, Southampton was one of the major launch pads for D-Day. Um, perhaps the most famous factory in town was the Supermarine, works in Wollstone where the Spitfire was actually designed and first built and the Germans knew how important Southampton was and there's this reconnaissance photo they've done in 1940 and I'll tweet a link to it at some point Mm, Um, but this photo and this yeah this photo and this annotation shows some of their targets they've marked out Um, they've highlighted the supermarine factory uh, the Fornicroft shipyard they've singled out places in the docks they've also targeted the gas works at Northam and during two daylight raids in September 1940 the supermarine factory was all but destroyed and during that same raid, they also hit the gas works. Um, 11 men were killed. And this is, of course, where St. Mary's was built many years later. And there's actually a plaque on the front of the stadium which remembers these men. Mm. Um, anyway, before I get too off topic, the, the worst nights of Southampton Splits came at the end of November and at the beginning of December 1940. Uh, much of the high street and above Bar Street was just destroyed in three devastating raids. Yeah. I think one eyewitness described the high street as being just a, a wall of flames. And some people even said they could see Swanson burning from France. So it's nothing pretty horrendous. But Mm. the bombing was pretty indiscriminate. And, yeah, one bomb landed in the penalty area at the Milton Road end. It made a big crater and it flooded the pitch. And Saints had to play the remaining wartime fixtures away at neutral grounds. And I believe we even played a home game at Fratton Park, believe it or not. Yeah, I think they did, didn't they? But uh, I think um, it just reiterates the bravery of the people of uh, Southampton during that time, Russell. But uh, before we go on to to talk about permanent floodlighting and record attendances and Mickey Shannon's testimonial at the Dow, let's take a a short breather from the sort of history of the Dow. We had a a number of Saints fans and TSP listeners get in touch to share their memories of first attending the Dow. So thanks to all of you who did. Um, What we're going to do is share some of them now and then we'll uh, have a few more memories later on. But first up is Steve Densham. Steve said, my first match at the Dow was Southampton versus Orin in 1974. I was 13 years old and lived in Harefield. I got a number 54 bus into Southampton, arriving around 3.30. My intention was to walk towards the area where I thought the Dow might be. I'd never been there before, but figured I'd hear the crowd and that would guide me to the ground. I was right. Once past the Polygon Hotel, I heard the faint noise of a crowd. I followed the sound to eventually come across Milton Road. The game was still going on. The excitement inside was immense, and I looked through the cracks in the turnstile but couldn't see anything. Then something happened that reshaped my life for years to come. The halftime whistle blew. The exit doors to the east stand open for some reason. I walked up to them and then peeked inside. I couldn't see much except some of the crowd who had come out of the stand. Slowly they started to go back in as the second half was just about to start. I turned to go back outside when a voice shouted, Not watching the second half? I said I didn't have a ticket. He then beckoned me over, go up there and sit in a spare seat, pointing up the stairs. I slowly made my way up the stairs and remembered the green pitch and thousands of faces as the teams came out for the second half. I imagine the crowd was probably around 14,000, but to a 13-year-old sat high in the stand, it could have been 40,000. Saints won the game 4-2, and from that moment on, Southampton became my second family, and on some occasions, my first. Stuart Chaplin says, My first match was actually the England under-21 game against Poland in 1999. Beats played, we won 5-0, and a young Frank Lampard scored an absolute worldie. Alan Harry says, My first game was versus Chelsea, which was a 3 all draw in 1990, with my two Chelsea-supporting uncles sitting in the away end. 
Jeff Stanfield, my dad, said 1956, September, with my granddad, uncle and dad. Third Division, South versus Plymouth. It was a two-all draw. Fell in love with our Saints and the Dow. Still miss the ground, the atmosphere, the queue to get in, and my homemade wooden box to stand on. And Mark Sperrin messaged us with the following. While on holiday with my parents in Malta, we met Steve Daly, who was staying at the same resort. He was the English record signing at the time, signing for Manchester City in 1979. We mentioned that we were Saints fans. Luckily for us, Man City's first away game of that 1980-81 season was against Saints at the Dell. We met him at the ground to receive some tickets, which was actually Kevin Keegan's first home game as well. We'd been to the Dell before, but this was the start, the real catalyst for the roller coaster ride to becoming a Saints supporter. And Mark went on to say, P.S. Unbelievably, in those days, you could buy tickets from the local newsagent Sperrings before becoming a season ticket holder. This was normal practice. Very different times now. Will, I think you've got a couple to share as well. Yeah, most certainly do. So we've got Kate Daish, she says, my one and only game at the Dell was the second to last game in 2001 versus Manchester United, winning 2-1. Unfortunately, I couldn't get tickets for the home end, so I had to sit with the away fans, keeping quiet. <laughs> Remember, Wes Brown's own goal and had to pretend to be horrified. Brave girl. Uh, and Colin Watt says, uh, my first game was uh, Rosenberg-Trondheim in the Fairs Cup of 1969. Right. Uh, we won 2-0. Fantastic atmosphere, and I was hooked for life. As a 10-year-old, I would get to the gates at Milton Road around 10.30am for a 3pm kickoff massively keen <laughs> and to make sure of getting on obviously into the front row behind the goal and finally one for my good friend Leon Burton yeah uh, my fondest memory of the Dell has got to be my very first match there at the age of 10 in September 1965 my dad told me that he was going to take me to watch Saints play Wolves and I remember walking up Hill Lane to the ground dad bought me a rosette and a program before we went through the Milton Road turnstiles which dad had to help me push to get through never seen so many people together in one place in all my life we positioned ourselves behind the goal, about halfway up the Milton Road Terrace, standing, of course, as there were no seats in those days. It seemed an age before the teams ran out from the corner of Dell. Then, at 10 to 3, they appeared. Saints had splendid red and white striped shirts on, Wolves were in their bright all gold. Being a small 10-year-old, I couldn't see much, so my dad hoisted me up so I could sit on the crash barrier in front of us. <laughs> I remember seeing the block of flats at the Archers Road end and wished I'd lived there when I was growing up. Before I knew it, we were a goal down in the first minute. And own goal too. But it was all okay in the end because we had eventual winners at an astonishing 9-3 win. Blimey. So I'd like to add on that as well. Whilst we're on, Leon, this year has, of course, seen the celebrations of VE Day 75. Mm. So I'd like to take this moment as a serving soldier in the British Army to give our specific thanks to Leon's father, Francis Burton, for his service. Francis was awarded the Military Medal. Um, so if any of you don't know what the Military Medal means, um, essentially it's awarded for bravery in the battlefield. It's now been replaced with what's commonly known as the Military Cross, yep. which is this country's third highest medal for valour, the highest being the Victoria Cross. So it's pretty impressive, incredible yeah. stuff his dad did there. And um, we remember Francis and all the men and women who sacrificed so much for us, lest we forget. Yeah, and no, I totally echo that, Will, very much. And uh, appreciate all the uh, the memories. As I say, we'll come on to uh, a few more later on. But, Glenn, in the meantime, tell us, uh, if you can, about your first visit to the Dell. I was very young. I was only seven, I think. So I don't remember too much about the very first game at the Dell, which was apparently the first game straight after the FA Cup final win. All right. I had to look it up. I couldn't remember anything about it. We <laughs> lost 2-1 to Carlisle. The first game I do remember anything about was through winning the FA Cup, we qualified for the now defunct European Cup Winners' Cup. Right. And we had an evening game in the, the first round against Marseille. 
who were not obviously not the force they uh, became in the in the 90s um and we won 4-0 and i do remember sort of going to that game and just the floodlights and the whole thing is ingrained in my memory um and i do remember we won 4-0 played really well i remember peter osgood scoring that was so that i think osgood scored in that game against carlisle as well so yeah. he was the first sort of goal scorer i saw against uh, against anyone at the dell and that is a, a memory that stayed with me. Just the Dell under lights was um, mm. was something special, especially for a seven year old kid. Yeah, and you you were just saying just briefly before we started, Glenn, as well, that pretty much 25 years at the Dell, you saw every game. So you know, like many many Saints fans, I'm sure will be listening to this. Obviously, somewhere that you will always hold in your heart. Yeah, very much so. And it's hard sometimes to not forget that it's not there anymore. You know, you go to St Mary's often enough. You don't get that wrong in your mind, but it's hard sometimes to think back. I see the Dell not being there now almost as it sort of symbolises what we've lost in a way yeah. in, in football. Um, and I know we played for 10 years in the Premier League at the Dell, but to me, it seems to be a reminder of when football was better, mm-hmm. if you like, as, as a whole. So uh, do miss it. And uh, yeah, it's somewhere that I uh, obviously spent a lot of time at uh, until the age of, I think I was about 31, 32 when the, when the ground went. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, age seven to age 32, it's quite a large chunk of time. Indeed it is. Uh, what about you, Russell? What do you remember of your first experience of the wonderful place? Uh, my dad took me to a pre-season friendly against Liège in right. 1999. Um, but like Glenn, I was young. I was about eight years old at the time, so I don't remember too much. Mm. Uh, but I can definitely remember the ground. I remember sort of looking up at the rusty ironwork, and and I remember the feeling of seeing the pitch for the first time, which is you know it's pretty special. But around the same time, I did have one of my birthday parties there, which I do remember All a bit right. better than my first game. So we had a tour of the ground and stuff. We sat in the changing rooms. It was like an indoor gym area, I think, which. It's sort of, it was almost like a school hall. Um, the players must have warmed up in it or something, but we had a kickabout in there and sat in the dugouts, went on the pitch, and, and yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah. What was it like? I mean, I, I never really got a chance to go sort of behind the scenes, so to speak, but in terms of the changing rooms, you know, obviously you see the ones like these days at St Mary's Russell. I mean, were they as small as everyone was saying, or was it bigger than you expected? I mean, to an eight-year-old, I think they're <laughs> probably quite big, but I've been in the changing rooms at St Mary's as well, and they're certainly a lot smaller than that. Yeah. Um, but when I look back now, it just felt like a proper football ground. Yeah. Will, what about your first game there then? What's your memories? Well, my early memories of uh, the Dell was uh, a particular game me and a group of, sort of friends, old schoolmates, uh, all sort of clubbed together. Now, they were at the time a lot keener on football. They were trying to drag me into it. Right. And um, they didn't really want me going down the route of supporting someone like Man United, who were popular mm. at the time. So they took me down the Dell for a, a Coca-Cola Cup match. <laughs> it was uh, Saints versus Peterborough United in 96. We won that 2-0. And... Um, I was a bit in awe of the whole thing. I mean, I, I really was getting into football at that point, and I've been past the Dell like a million times before, but mm. never actually ventured in, mainly because my dad was quite tight and didn't want to pay for a ticket. Um, so the Coca-Cola Cup match was ideal because it was small amount of pocket money could get you in, possibly the, what was it, I think it was the West Stand I went on in, which was like the McDonald's area for, yeah. for the family's area. So we sort of pushed our way through the old turnstiles there. I remember it being quite stiff, like Leon mentioned mm. in his letter earlier, and... Um, yeah, I sat down sort of near the front. Uh, we had a lady sat to the right of us who spent most of her time shouting obscenities at Neil Shepherdy because she fancied him. And um, Graham soon as sort of comes out of the tunnel and walks past us. And a mate of mine, Ken Martin, sort of said, you know, shouted his name and asked for his autograph. And he ignored us. Right. So my mate Martin, being the brash sort of character he was, said, held an obscenity at him. 
to which Graham Sooners came back and sort of pointed in his chest like, sort of like, well, you're not going to get one now, are you? <laughs> and I thought, this is quite feisty, this. Yeah, this is... yeah. That was baptism <laughs> and, um, of fire, yeah. It was. And the fact that it was afterwards, it was Graham Sooners is stuck in my mind as one of these characters that didn't really mind having a go at a kid, regardless of who they were, yeah. uh, or anyone, in fact. Um, it's only when later on I read about he was a bit of a hard player and uh, just mm. as hard a manager. And the, the odd things about the stadium as well, it's um, looking back, I mean, my memories are like the Milton Road end with a sort of angle, newish looking stand compared to the rest of the Dell. Um, but then obviously looking through archive stuff, that changed several times over the years and bits added, bits taken off. Mm. Um, I think sitting next to so close to a football pitch was unreal. Um, yeah. Obviously, the numerous times I've been to St Mary's, I always feel, even when I am sat close to the pitch, still quite some distance because you've got like the advertising hoarding. Then you've got like two sets of tracks. Then you've got the stewards in the way. Then you've got the pitch. But the Dell, it was kind of felt like if you just leant out from, you know, where you were sat, you could probably touch the pitch. Mm. And I think that's what made it massively unique and intimidating for any team that came and played us there. I mean, that was certainly an extra player yeah. having that uh, on our side. But um. You know, it had character. It was proper football, proper support. We can't go back. We've always got to think about going forward. Mm. But um, I'm just grateful I got the opportunity to see the place and go there to see a few games. Yeah, completely. And uh, it was interesting. I know on your Saints Archive uh, site a few weeks back, I think someone had asked the question to ex-players about whether they could hear, you know, the crowd encouragement and abuse and things like that, or not abuse, maybe advice is a better word. But I think all of them were quick to say that you could certainly hear when things were going badly, put it that way. But uh, yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think a bit like um, yourself and Glenn in terms of my first match. Um, again, Glenn, a bit like you, I had to reach out to my dad and try and uh, rustle up some memories because uh, I was only six years old, so I couldn't really remember it at all, um, other than the fact that I knew Colin Clark had scored. But uh, we managed to agree that it was Sheffield Wednesday at home in September 1987 and to be honest um, I think like you guys sort of said I mean we went lower west so in those days they were just benches along the front of the tier there and I remember sort of initially looking around my, my granddad had a season ticket in the top uh, of the west stand just in the front row so I remember sort of looking up and waving at him and that sort of thing and uh, as I mentioned Colin Clark scored for us um, it was uh, a one all draw but the funny thing and dad always reminds me about this and I actually do remember this is that when Colin Clark scored all the crowd sort of jumped up around me and uh, started cheering and I remember dad just looking down at me and I was sat there with my arms folded because I didn't know what was going on and I didn't know what they were all doing and of course having never been to a, a game like that uh, you know at the Dell before it was uh, such a roar I think I was probably partly scared as well but um, the first one I really remember and I know I um, shared the video with you on uh, your Saints Archive website um, over the last sort of couple of weeks or so Will was the um, game against Liverpool when we beat them 4-1 in October 1989 so I was you know eight years old then a little bit more of a memory and I think and um stood right at the top of the Milton Road stand so I went with my best mate and his dad and we used to in those days always stand right at the top of the Milton Road stand and hold on to the bars that went along the back because you felt like you'd get a better view of the pitch and you could obviously uh, sort of stand on uh, as uh, my dad had mentioned sort of whether it's a wooden box or a crate or something like that but Saints under Chris Nickel then were simply scintillating you know great side on paper the likes of Shearer and uh, Rideout and Jimmy Case and people like that I think uh, Paul Rideout scored, Rob Wallace got a couple, Matt Letizia as well, and uh, Liverpool actually went on to win the league that year, the 89-90 season. They only lost five games in the entire league campaign, and one of those, of course, was the 4-1 game, and I think it could have been, Glenn, you may agree, I mean, it could have been seven or eight that day, and uh, I think for me it was a stunning performance and really just ignited my passion and enthusiasm for supporting Saints and, and going to the Dells. So, you know, an incredible atmosphere and an even better result. So that's my memories of the first sort of couple of games at the Dell, really. 
Before we get going again, Alistair Downs, who's one of our own brilliant TSP patrons, shared his first experience with the Dallas one. I've left this one to last because uh, it's a slightly different tale, but Alistair said... 19th of November 1994, I was there that day, not in the Dow, but rather outside the Dow. I had yet to make it to a game, but knew I wanted to. Alan Ball's Saints were taking on the might of the Arsenal. My grandparents lived in Southampton, so we regularly travelled down from Surrey to see them at the weekends. I was already a Saints fan and avidly follow their progress every week via teletext and usually three minutes or so of match highlights and match of the day. Nothing's really changed there, Alistair. Um, That Saturday afternoon, I was taken down to the Tiny Dow Club shop to buy some club merchandise. We reasoned that uh, traffic-wise, the quietest time to go would actually be during the game. So we walked down Hill Lane before turning left onto Milton Road. I remember hearing the sound of the crowd rising and falling, feeling the agony of not knowing what was going on and praying that Saints would somehow do the impossible and beat Arsenal so I could travel back up the M3 and dish out some smugness at school to all the Gooners the following Monday. The ladies at the club shop soon assured me that the score was still near-nil heading into the second half, and the pessimist in me, which uh, hasn't really changed, he says, probably thought that that's about as much as we could hope for. Alistair says he remembers walking out of the shop and standing outside the big red gates on the Milton Road. He peered in through a crack. No view of the pitch, of course, but I could see sections of the crowd in the West Stand, I'm sure. It was then that I heard a very loud, go on, followed by a pause that seemed to last forever before the most incredible, yeah, from 15,000 Saints fans. It was absolutely electrifying. I celebrated as if I'd seen the goal myself. Running back into the club shop, the staff told me that Jim Magilton had scored. By the time we got back to the car, there was still a few minutes left, and we listened until the end on the radio. 1-0 Saints, what a win. Saints beating the big teams at the Dow would come to define my experience as a fan at that great ground. I would go on to witness further wins over Arsenal, Man United, Chelsea and Liverpool, but it's the one that I didn't see that for some reason will always stand out. What a magical place. And a great story, Alistair. Thanks to all of you for sharing those. We'll have some more in a little while. Right, Russell, where were we? Oh, yeah, 1950 and the Dow creating some uh, floodlight history then. Yeah, so I think floodlights have certainly been used experimentally in the past, um, but never really sort of in a proper game that the FA never sanctioned their use. Clubs used them for training and stuff, but apparently the Dow was the first ground in England to actually have them permanently installed. There were 16, 1,500 watt lamps put up, right. eight, uh, eight on each stand, and it cost about £700 to do. The first game they actually used them was a friendly against Bournemouth, uh, except a heavy fog had descended upon the ground and nobody could really see much uh, and it ended nil-nil when it was all quite uninspiring. <laughs> but the floodlights did spark a discussion about floodlights in football. Yeah. Um, a lot of people thought that it would be the way forward and the derby manager was actually at the game and he said that he liked the idea and he went back to his chairman and said, you know, I think this is something we should look at. Mm. And the Derby Daily Telegraph reckoned that the Dells lights meant that there was a future for football by floodlight. Right. And then, of course, the first competitive game under lights at the Dell came a year later in a reserve fixture. Heading into the very late 60s, then, 1969 in particular, the Dell would set its uh, record attendance of 31,044 for the visit of Manchester United side, including the likes of George Best and Bobby Charlton. United unfortunately won that game 3-0, but it was an attendance that would never officially be topped before the 2001 closure. One game that came very close to breaking the record, and indeed may well have done if uh, you potentially counted all the nooks and crannies around the ground, was uh, Mick Shannon's testimonial in 1976, just after the FA Cup win. So tell us a bit about the story surrounding that evening um, based on your website, Russell. Yeah, so obviously it was a bit before my time, but I've seen a lot of people on Twitter and stuff, you know, on, on the internet and forums and whatever, um, describe the game, 
said about how packed it was. Um, there's absolutely no space. Mm. And I've actually seen quite a few people say they were stuck outside as well, just unable to get a ticket, uh, packed to the rafters. Um, the game itself, of course, came two days after we won the FA Cup. So I think everybody was probably just eager to celebrate. Mm. And um, the Cup was paraded before the match. And before the full-time whistle was even blown, the fans just poured onto the pitch. And it was just it was apparently just one big celebration. And you know, it must have been brilliant to have been there and with the famous FA Cup win, the, the homecoming with the open top bus parade and Shannon's testimonial. It just must have been a brilliant time to be a Saints fan. Yeah, brilliant week. Glenn, I know you um, discussed that you weren't necessarily at the game, but do you remember the buzz around the city and uh, I guess the Dal itself during those sort of few days? I do remember the buzz around the city after the Cup win. Um, I didn't realise until, until I looked it up, actually, that Shannon's testimonial was literally only two days afterwards. Yeah. So I imagine most of the players were still drunk. Uh, <laughs> There is some footage of the game of uh, Mick Channon running around sort of like holding the FA Cup. And I mean, from what I've been told by people who did go, the game such as it was against QPR was, was going on. And there yeah. were, the, you know, there were like rows of people sat in front of the stands in between the, the touchlines and the and the stands. So um, health and safety would have had a nightmare <laughs> if health and safety had existed around then. But yeah. uh, it was a great day. But I, I do remember the buzz in the city and how, even at my school, I was in Netley as well. Oh, right. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I grew up there. So uh, I do remember my school and how excited everyone was and, you know, people who didn't usually demonstrate any uh, affiliation to sport whatsoever suddenly being interested. So it was, a, it was a great thing and a great few days for the city. Before we move on, why not relive some of that brilliant 76 Cup fever? Here's a clip from a BBC documentary made about the year 1976 which includes a bit on Saints and features Mickey and also our great manager of the time, Laurie McMenemy. The summer started with a bang on May the 1st, Cup final day. Second division underdog Southampton had fought their way to the final, only to face one of the country's greatest teams, Manchester United. Southampton had never won an English trophy, while Man United had won the league six times, taken three FA Cups and been champions of Europe. Southampton's manager knew the odds were stacked against them. On the morning of the game in my hotel room, my phone rang and it was Mick Channon. He said, Gaffer, now you've seen what price we are. Seven to one, I said. Christ, I can't believe it. Two horse race and we're seven to one. Britain's high and mighty took their seats among the 100,000 crowd, waiting for the season's biggest spectacle to begin. As you get higher up the tunnel, the noise gets bigger, the light gets brighter, and then wallop. Blinded by the light. And a tremendous roar. As Laurie McMenemy on the right leads out Southampton. Mike Shannon. The roar of the crowd, it just makes your, your hair stand up on the back of your arms and on the back of your neck. started at a furious pace. Shannon started to run, number eight. Buckingham. Under the hot sunshine, Southampton were in danger of trying too hard. The first 25 minutes, I remember sort of thinking, God, my chest's going to explode, you know? Shannon outside. Couldn't breathe, it was that hot, you know, and blood's pumping in you, and you're probably doing too much. The game remained goalless as Southampton held on for 83 minutes. Suddenly, the impossible happened. Goalkeeper knocked it out. Jimmy McCallion put a terrific defence-spitting pass for Bobby Stokes, bless him. McCallion to Stokes is onside! One nil! It was at the right time, it was late on in the game. We just felt that the FA Cup was going our way. Southampton! 
was seven minutes to go. And I tell you, that was the longest seven minutes of my life. Well, you can almost see him rehearsing the song. And the whistle has gone. Some lucky punters won a packet at 7-1. to one. Truly remarkable story. The next day, the team went home and paraded the cup through the streets of Southampton. I always remember coming back to Southampton. I've never seen as many people in my life. Fantastic scenes. Men were crying. There was, there was one fella, I remember, stark naked. He was stood up on the car, starkers. <laughs> and he'd lost his bet, hadn't he? He was probably a Portsmouth supporter. The weather went on to be so hot. We were invited to so many street parties, you wouldn't believe it was like the end of the war. That's the great memory of God of that summer. Happy people, happy faces. Will. Since 1960s and 70s, uh, the famous chocolate boxes dominated the Milton Road end. They were perched up on concrete pillars and could hold around a thousand fans. Steps up to them were steep, with one box being allocated for children up to the age of 14. Mm. By only the early 1980s, it had been replaced by a family stand, which was then rebuilt again in the 1990s, creating a unique, odd-shaped Milton stand that was so instantly recognisable as belonging to the Dell. Mm. Unfortunately, after the Hillsborough disaster in 1989, the Dell had to convert to an all-seater stadium, leaving it with one of the lowest capacities in the league at around 15,200. And that capacity attendance, indeed 15,252, was present for the final ever league game at the Dell on the 19th of May 2001. I believe I've put out a programme out in the Saints archive today for that particular match. Yeah, that's right, Will. The the famous 3-2 win against Arsenal, which finished just like this. Paul Jones launches the ball forward to the edge of the air, looking for James Beattie. Beattie to Letizia in the air, couldn't bring it down. Shot, he scores! I'm not going to lie, that clip gives me goosebumps every single time I listen to it. Firstly, thank you very much to Radio Solent for letting us include that in the podcast this week. Glenn, has there ever been a more perfect ending for such a perfect old football stadium? Not as far as I'm concerned, there hasn't been, no. It was unreal. It was absolutely unreal. Um, as soon as he came on as a sub, and I mean, let's face it, Matt wasn't in the best of condition at mm. that stage. He was injured, and uh, I think he would admit himself he was probably carrying a few more pounds than he should have been. Yeah. Um, but you know, when that ball dropped for him, you just knew that it was going to wind up in the net, and it did. Yeah, it was unreal. I cried. It was pathetic. But it was, um, yeah, it was, it was just, it was just one of those things. And then, but I always remember Chris Marston trying to ruin it <laughs> just afterwards because yeah. he, he had a hell of a shot that um, Meninga, Alex, Alex Meninga, yeah, yeah, yeah. tipped over the bar. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it was it was a fantastic end because I mean it wasn't uh, it was a pretty good Arsenal side of course. Yeah. It was um, the Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira sort of era, and it was just a fantastic end really. Mm. And, Stuart Gray was the manager, wasn't he? He was. He didn't last, he he didn't last too long afterwards. So uh, nice thing for him to remember being in charge for that. But uh, a great end and a and a fitting end. Um, we joke about me me being the more senior person on here, but I mean I'm almost exactly the same age as Matt Latissier. So I was sort of 
watched his entire career at the Dell, really. Yeah. So uh, for him to score the um, to score the last goal for me personally, that was brilliant. Yeah, as old and arguably as good off the ball, Glenn. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, but, but you're right though. I mean, as uh, Matt, uh, for those that haven't had a chance to listen, Matt came on the pod with uh, Will and myself in episode 104, and uh, he uh, made a point of saying during that that whilst he hadn't been fit, Stuart Gray had turned around to him and Franny Benali uh, the week before the game to say, "You're both going to play some part in the game." You know, after all you've done for the club, and uh, I think um, you know I personally wasn't at Jason Dodd's testimonial, the last ever game at the Dow against Brighton. So that moment watching Matty score and running across to the West Ham, which was pretty much in front of us. Lower West will forever be my last memory of the Dow, and I couldn't really be happier with that, to be honest. I think, like the other 15,251 in attendance, I'll carry it with me for the rest of my life. And as Russell's historic Southampton site outlines, Arsene Wenger, the Arsenal manager on the receiving end of Matty's beautiful winner, actually had some very kind words to say about the Dow post match because Wenger was quoted as saying, It's always been a tough place, and when they move to a bigger stadium with a bigger pitch, they may find less fear from opponents. It's a lovely old ground, and when you look at the fixtures, you know you will have done well to get any points here no matter how good Southampton are you always know you will be playing against both Southampton and the crowd at the Dell Okay, let's get back to some of your memories. These ones are about the Dal in general. Will? Okay, first up is Mark Atkins. Fantastic, proper old ground, which I loved going to as a teenager back in the 80s. A group of us from school would get the train from Swanwick and get to the ground in time for our turnstiles opening. We had to put in a prime spot on the Milton Road Terrace right behind the goal, just uh, under the family centre. It was worth getting in early, especially when John Budgie Burridge was doing his extravagant pre-match warm-ups. So many great players at the time. Wallace Brothers, Letiz, Rideout, Shearer, Case, I could go on. Shame we had to move on to St Mary's, but I dread to think we'd been right now if we were still limited to 15,000 capacity. Mm. Uh, Nick Hengston says, my brother and myself and Tony Stacey, now a steward at St Mary's, nice name drop there, <laughs> used to walk here to the Dell from Colebrook Avenue. I was about eight in 1968, and we would wait for what seemed like hours for the players in the car park. Between 10 25 of us, all in all, would sometimes kick a ball about the past time. Quite often, the club secretary, Gordon Honey, would come out and tell us all to bugger off and leave the car park. <laughs> anyway, that didn't stop us, and we'd go back in for autographs. Shannon, Payne, Davis, Gabriel, Hollywood, Bobby Stokes, McGrath, O'Neill, and all the others would sign my scrapbook. I was normally too in awe to say much to them. <laughs> I think most of us would be, to be yeah. fair there, Nick. And um, finally, Shipston Saint says, one memory is Mick Shannon drifting over the touchline and asking the fans for horse racing results, actually during the game. <laughs> um, another is Shannon again, going in goal during the pre-match warm-up uh, before one game, trying to save a penalty, turning away and the ball striking his ass. It was probably all rehearsed, but completely funny at, at the same time. Yeah, I can imagine. And uh, Glenn, you've got some as well. Yeah, this is from Danny Phillips. As a YTS player at the Dell in the early to mid-90s, I could still walk you through the inside of the ground in my mind as we spent so much time doing our jobs there. <laughs> the place had so much character. There was an indoor hall we trained on, a multi-gym near to the player's entrance onto the pitch, and the track around the pitch that was the stuff of nightmares. If I had a pound for every lap of the pitch I'd run, I'd be set for life. The boot room was above the player's entrance near the player's lounge, and we'd spend our times there sorting out the boots and trying to stay out of trouble with the staff as the staff room was behind it. Good times and great fun. Love that ground. Mm. And Liam Curtis says, 
So much to say about this lovely old ground. Used to go with my dad. My first game there was in 1994, curtain raiser against Blackburn. Bruce Grobelar saved a penalty from Alan Shearer right in front of us in the Milton Road end. How I missed the waft of Bovril and cigarette smoke. <laughs> Autographs in the car park, Mouseland Van, Paul Jones, Egger Lostenstadt, etc. Most memorable goal was Beatty's stunner at home to Leicester en route to our great escape. Yeah, what a season that was. Marion scoring those two goals on the final day against Everton sure lit up the day. The atmosphere, I remember that day, I'm sure you did as well, uh, Glenn, was simply incredible. Um, OK, the final memory comes from Julie Greenshields, and it's a, a brilliant, unique tale. Julie says, I was a regular at the Dow from the late 70s to the early 90s with a season ticket for much of that time. I was in my early teens when I was first taken by my now late dad, who finally gave in to my long-standing pleas after the FA Cup win and really came up trumps a couple of years later with season tickets. We lived in Paul at that time, so always made a day of it and went shopping. No West Key, but plumbers, Tyrrell and Green, Owen and Owen were regular haunts and perhaps a pub lunch before the match. Dad used to park near the old Polygon Hotel, now also gone, but can't remember the exact name of the road. Evening midweek games were more of a rush and often had to do a very quick change act out of my school uniform and bolt down the mill mum had ready before the drive to Southampton and a 7.30pm kickoff. Mum also became a season ticket holder for the last couple of seasons. The Dow represents a big part of my life at that time when the football results were one of the major issues in life. I still have my scrapbooks which I so diligently kept in that era and so many truly great memories. From my later teams I caught the train from Paul to Southampton to watch the reserve games with free entry using my season ticket which was such devotion. My friends, some of whom I met at the Dow and remain friends with to this day, and I regularly collected autographs in the Dow car park and took photos of each other with our favourite players to be developed in time for the next visit to the ground and hopefully autographed. It was a great time to be a Saints fan. The Dow will always have a place in my heart as I associate with good times in my life and wonderful memories. One such is when Dad and I were queuing up to claim our seats for a cup tie and I spotted Mark Dennis. So I went to ask for an autograph. Sadly, neither of us had a pen, so I rejoined Dad in the queue. Next thing I knew, Dad had Mark Dennis tapping him on the shoulder, asking if he could give me a kiss in lieu of the autograph, and permission was granted. In short, the Dow can never be replaced in my affections. I think any of us that have had the opportunity to spend regular time at the Dow would uh, 100% agree with that comment, Julie. Thanks for sharing. Just before we finish up then, Russell, I know you were only sort of 10 or so when we moved to St Mary's, so I'll leave you out of this uh, little bit. But, Will, did you have any sort of pre-, mid- or post-game rituals or memories you used to undertake when visiting the Dow? I don't know, visiting a regular pub or standing sitting in the same place or wearing lucky socks or something like that? To be fair, I was a bit of a wimpy kid, so um, my pre-match ritual was try not to get beaten up by somebody. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, they kind of carried on. I've got a thing for wearing, they get washed beforehand, but I wear the same underwear right. uh, for as much of the season as I could do. That's passed on to the St Mary's, and um, I will admit that even now I wear a set of uh, army issue pants that was given to me in Afghanistan. <laughs> and Yeah, yeah, and... Um, I'm getting a bit wider for them, so they're starting to cut off a bit, you know, so I'm going to have to give up that ritual and uh, find something else. But uh, to be fair, I used to go down with a group of gobby little lads, and um, as I said, we were lucky to get there without getting beaten up by another group of gobby little lads. So uh, that was pretty much my way, just keeping an eye out for anyone that wanted to uh, have a fight. (laughs) I I don't want to ask, uh, Will, whether it's uh, more nerve-wracking wearing those pants in Afghanistan or more nerve-wracking wearing them while watching Saints defend. I don't know what's uh, best. 
I can put them on par pretty much equal, to be fair. I mean, yeah. uh, I think the intensity of a Saints game for 90 whole minutes, uh, watching them defend poorly or, or trying to hold on to a 1-0 lead is, is, is pretty tense. Um, <laughs> um, Afghan, I was quite fortunate in the respects that I operated a map depot. So, uh, oh, that was all right then. So, yeah, yeah, it was all right. Nothing really. So, yeah, no, absolutely good stuff. And, uh, Glenn, I mean, I don't know whether you had any sort of regular Dow rituals that you, you know, you yourself or your family undertook. Well, I can kind of split it into sort of like two halves because when I was a kid, we used to live in uh, in Waterlooville near Portsmouth. Um, <laughs> so we used to come in and park at my granddad's house, which was uh, in Lodge Road. Right. So we'd walk a- across Stag Gates, past roughly where the, uh, the old ice rink used to be, and then down Archers Road. And we walked down Archers Road. There was a cutway by St. Mark's Church, mm. um, went through that and went in the Milton Road end. So for all the changes of the Milton Road end, it never seemed to change much to me because I was always sort of like stood on it. So I never, <laughs> you could never really see it sort of like changing from uh, yeah. from uh, the vantage point I had. But we always sort of like found the, the same railing, always on the same railing behind the goal, about eye height to the crossbar, if that makes sense. Yeah. So we always stood in roughly the same place. Um, that was our journey when, uh, when I was younger. Um, and afterwards, um, the last sort of like 10 years when mm. we were all living in Southampton again, um, I always used to sort of like walk to the game from Bedford Place down Wilton Avenue. Right. So you get to the bottom of Wilton Avenue where it intersect with Milton Road. You'd go round a little corner. There was a garage on the corner. Mm-hmm. And then you were faced with the Milton Road end and people trying to flog your cuppies at the ugly inside. Um, <laughs> dodgy T-shirt sellers and rancid burger vans and things like that. <laughs> Always the same thing, um, the same trip to the same part of the ground. Yeah. But one thing I do remember now, it's a little little aside, is that about five years ago, I took my wife to get a haircut in Bedford Place, and I had half an hour to kill or an hour to kill or whatever, mm. and I thought, you know, I'll just wander down Wilton Avenue and do the old – and I got halfway down there, and I thought, I actually don't want to go. Yeah. Uh, I actually turned around and came back. I don't think I've ever been back to, you know, the end of Wilton yeah. Avenue – I don't think I've ever been since the last game there. Mm. Again, I've got no real need to go that way. I've driven down Hill Lane a few times, but there's been no need for me to drive down Archers Road or Milton Road or Milton Avenue or anything like that. So, and that's that's something that I'm kind of quite keen to keep going. Yeah. I want to sort of like leave that particular part of town back pre-2001 where it belongs. Yeah, I completely agree because I think it's the same with the cricket ground, isn't it? Just around on Northlands Road, it's kind of, you've got that memory of uh, two wonderful sports yeah. venues that are now lo- no longer there, but I think as uh, children growing up, you know, whether it was going to watch Hampshire play or, or going to the Dow, yeah, it's, that's what you want to keep in your mind really, isn't it? But uh, yeah. no, I, I think great memories and uh, appreciate you two sharing. I, I think probably like lots of Saints fans that are listening, I think we all had our own sort of pre-match uh, routines and uh, things like that and, you know, I was no different, so we always used to park on Rockstone Place which was just off Carlton Crescent and uh, you know we'd normally arrive probably around 12.45, 1 o'clock, something like that and then we'd always um, head just around the corner onto Bedford Place and I'm sure many of you will remember and know of a, a shoe stop I uh, believe is still there, French and Sons, which has been trading in Southampton uh, since 1803. I was using your website to look that up, Russell, and um, ne- next to the uh, French and Sons was a news agent and uh, we'd always go in there to get a bag of sweets before the game so not, no, normally something like Everton Mints or Pear Drops or Kayla Cubes something like that and uh, I'm sure like every Saints fan and a bit like Will in his lucky pants um, it was a superstition thing so if Saints had won and we bought Pear Drops we'd get Pear Drops that week if we bought Pear Drops and they'd lost you know we'd obviously get something different in the hope that it would uh, bring a change of form but we'd then walk along Carlton Road and down Milton Road so we were kind of coming at it from the other end uh, to you really Glenn and uh, 
in the younger years we just sort of continue down Milton Road head towards the stand if we didn't go straight up and sort of get our position at the top of the stand we'd then sort of you know maybe wander around past the shop which of course uh, in those days I think to all of us was a, a very very small little Santa's grotto underneath the boardroom there and occasionally you'd walk around in the car park and see what was going on and see if you could see any of the players but generally we just go and wait up the top of the Milton Road and uh, watch them warm up and that sort of thing um, as we got older of course that uh, walk down Milton Road would uh, still involve the the news agents beforehand but then uh, like many Saints fans we'd stop at the uh, the Fitzhugh for a pint or two and of course in the winter you all sort of crowbarred inside playing pool and then in the summer you'd be milling around outside just generally chatting and you know reliving all the sort of the Saints things but was good days and by now we were sort of sitting uh, lower west as I mentioned earlier so we'd walk on down Milton Road um, near where the players came out in the the sort of lower west wing and um, Go through the turnstiles, and as Will mentioned, I don't know, you know, however old you are, they always felt hard work to try and get through them. You go down a, a set of steps. By now, you'd always be able to smell the toilets. I think wherever you were in the Dow, you'd be able to smell that. You'd stop and put a, a few quid on uh, whether it was a Gordon Watson or a Neil Shipley or a Letizier to get the first goal, and then um, you know, go down and find your seat. And because we were sitting under the lower west, and anyone that used to sit lower west or lower east will probably reminisce with this, is if the ball went about 10, 15 foot in the air, you couldn't actually see it because the stands came down kind of in front of you so it was really hard and uh, you know in those days we didn't seem to play a lot of football on the on the floor so it was kind of hard work but I think ultimately you know I think for many of us saw many fantastic wins there and uh, you know I think if we look back I think it's just great days and a, a great stadium that uh, all of us loved to uh, go into. Russell let's give you the final word to view and uh, sort of historic Southampton. Sum up if you can the Dell for us because I guess it's a, a sort of piece of unique football stadium that now sadly lost the course but which will always be synonymous with our brilliant city because of the fantastic memories and club's wonderful history there yeah i think you summed it up nicely there ben for over a century it was at the heart of many people's lives you know social lives going to the dell with a family and the mates as you know as we've heard and every single game that i think from the famous to the run of the mill mm. from the first to the last has created memories for the many thousands who passed through its turnstiles and i think that everyone who was fortunate enough to have been able to go there between 1898 and 2001 would have known that it was a special ground and it wasn't the biggest, it wasn't the most spectacular, but it was ours. And I think it's got a special place in people's hearts. And the wonderful memories that we've heard tonight is a testament to that. Well, what can I say? It's been a, a bit of a marathon. Uh, appreciate it. it's been quite a wordy podcast, but hopefully uh, you've enjoyed it. I think there was a lot of stuff that we wanted to make sure that uh, we got in there and a lot of facts and figures. Um, a massive thanks to Glenda LaCour, Will Dor, and of uh, course Russell Masters for joining this TSP. Please do check out Russell's wonderful website, www.historicsofhampton.co.uk, or give him a, a follow on Twitter at Historical Sutton if you aren't already. What we'll do is when we put this podcast out on uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook, we'll uh, make sure that Russell's website is underneath so you should just be able to find it very very quickly if you can't already um, of course don't forget Will's own site Saints Archive it also covers many wonderful Saints clips and stories the best place to head for it is uh, Facebook and just search for Saints Archive for now though I think we can all agree that the Dow will always be part of Southampton's history the games it hosted the wins it achieved the fabulous red and white striped Saints players it witnessed the great goals it saw scored from Watty Kay on the 3rd of September 1898 to Matthew Letizier on the 19th of May 2001. It may not be with us physically any longer, but it will forever be in our hearts. 103 years of dedicated service to our city. This has been TSP 116, the Dow years. Keep marching in. Cause we all need these
The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.